Welcome to the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference podcast, presented by ESPN and 42 Analytics. This is Jessica Gelman, who along with Daryl Morey, co-founded and chair the conference with a fantastic group of MIT Sloan students each year. We are thrilled to announce the launch of this podcast network to add more avenues to grow awareness and innovation around analytics and sports. We are excited to make the panel discussions from our 2019 conference, which covers a wide range of sports and analytics topics available via podcast for the very first time. Thanks for listening and enjoy. Good morning and welcome to the 2019 Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. My name is Dawn Xiang and I'm a first year MBA student here at MIT Sloan. And it's my pleasure to introduce our panel, Helping Dream Chasers, Social Justice with Meek Mill and Michael Rubin. Our panelists today are Meek Mill, hip hop artist and criminal justice reform advocate, and Michael Rubin, co-owner of the Philadelphia 76ers and executive chairman of Fanatics. And together they are the co-chairman of the Reform Alliance. Our moderator today is Rachel Nichols, ESPN host. The panel will run for 45 minutes and um, if we have time at the ends, we'll take some questions. And if you would like to submit a question, you can do so via Twitter using the hashtag SocialJusticeSSAC. And with that, I will turn it over to Rachel. Excellent. Hello, everyone. Welcome. Um, first of all, I know I'm supposed to say wonderful things about Meek because he's this amazing artist, and he's on stage with Drake last night and accomplished so much professionally. But the man just flew here from the West Coast and is flying back to San Francisco to do a concert tonight. So I just want to give a little round of applause for the effort made to be here. I'm I appreciate that. Super impressed. And he gave up the tea that he was drinking, the hot tea for his voice, before he even gave here, just so he could be here in front of you. So, you know, I'm just saying that. Thanks for having me here today. <laughs> Excellent. I love the story of the friendship between the two of you because it's not a likely friendship. And you guys met at an all-star game. Michael, of course, one of the owners of the 76ers. And I love it because your daughter was chatting with, you were uh, there with Nicki Minaj at the time, and your daughter was super impressed and wanted to take a bunch of pictures. And what I love is that Michael looked at Meek and said, who are you? And that Meek looked at Michael and said, well, who are you? And there you go. What was that like when you guys met? Uh, You know, I was at a basketball game, and uh, I was taking a lot of pictures, and I happened to be sitting next to Mike. And I guess Mike sent me just taking me and my uh, ex-girlfriend taking a lot, a lot of pictures. And he asked me who I was. I asked him who he was. And uh, he was saying he was the owner of the Philadelphia 76ers. And, you know, I went right into uh, question mode. I wanted to know uh, how he graduated, uh, how did he move to that level of success. And, you know, we started chatting and talking about uh, his, his upcoming. And we talked about my upcoming. And from there, we've been like close friends ever since. You know, for me, I, I loved it because I'm a guy who barely made out of high school. Um, I went to college for literally weeks, and everything I've ever learned has been by asking questions and being like a sponge. And Meek was exactly the same way. Here's this, you know, kid, a really successful rapper who, I, you know, you know, I didn't really know a lot about, but he's asking all these business questions, like if I want to do this, how do you do it? If I want to do that, and literally, I was like, after 20 minutes, these guys asked me 50 great questions. It was, uh, it was awesome. And friendship goes from there, and we're going to hear to talk a little bit about criminal justice reform. And I think it's important to start with the idea of 
the beginning of this is often not what people think. Yeah. A lot of times people think like, oh, you're talking about people who are either hardened criminals or for sort of things that they, once they get into the system. But even the way you got into the system, to me, is so striking yeah. that I wanted to just go back to the very beginning. So if you wouldn't mind telling us a little bit about the original crime that you supposedly committed that started all of this? Uh, I was locked up in Philadelphia and I was charged with putting a firearm at uh, two, three police officers without a single shot being fired. At the time I was uh, growing up in the streets of Philadelphia, didn't really have any uh, good representation as far as uh, attorney fees and, and having a good attorney and someone represent me. And uh, I actually, I was found guilty on all charges and you know, uh, the environment I come up in, you know, when police, uh, not saying all police are bad police because I know great police officers, uh, but in some of these pockets in small ghettos of America, you have police who uh, actually overcharge people. People get charged with crimes and when we go to prison, we grow up in poverty. We don't have representation, so nine times out of 10, we take plea deals uh, for crimes you didn't do to uh, shorten the time frame of, prison time, you spending time. Me, I did not take a plea deal. I went to trial for it and lost. I was found guilty of pointing a firearm at two police officers. And just stating that on stage, even having to say I was found guilty and, and, and I am guilty of pointing a, a firearm at two police officers uh, always strikes me because uh, I always made smart decisions my whole life. Uh, I made it to this point. I made it from like ground zero of poverty, one of the worstest uh, stages you can probably come up in America and growing up as a young man in America I always been smart in school I always did like a lot of good uh, I, I grew up in a bad environment but you know pointing a firearm at a police officer for a black young man I think everybody in the room would know the outcome of that that's like almost basically suicide in my world and I never thought about committing suicide I always made good choices, but unfortunately, I grew up in a bad environment where it was nothing but bad surrounded around us. So, you know, I had to, as a young kid, navigate my way uh, through making choices to get to the point where I'm at now. And uh, just from my character and the way I carry myself, uh, where I'm at now, where I came from, nothing in the history of my life ever showed me uh, to be as reckless to point a firearm at uh, two armed police officers at one time and you know I was found guilty of that and that was normal in my environment. I always tell Mike Mike still to this day and say he say that is not normal. I'm like in, in my environment uh, uh, it's kind of normal. It's not normal. Yeah I, I, I see. It, it shouldn't be normal. Yeah. And that's kind of to the larger point and, and I just want to emphasize one thing you just said is that if you really had been in a situation where you did what they said you did, was hey you whipped out a gun to two armed cops. Yeah. As you point out the result would most likely not be a peaceful solution where they just yeah. bring a guy in. It wasn't you, a... And you had told Michael that for a long time, right? Yeah, I've been telling Michael that for about f five years. And uh, Michael lives in a different world than me. And, you know, I used to always just be like, I would say it like once every two months. I'd be like, yo, you know I'm found guilty for pointing a gun at two cops. I'm like, you know, that's like almost impossible in the world where I come from. Uh, I don't know if anyone knows, I had a, a, a mixed uh, album cover, it's called DC4. Anybody in here listen to my music? Uh, thank you. On the album cover, I actually used my mug shot where, you know, my face is uh, swollen all over my face, uh, stitches, lip busted, both sides of my eyes, my eyes are swollen shut. And you know, uh, if you don't come from that world, you know, if you get, uh, 
beaten by police, nine times out of ten, it has to be like charges to cover up why you came in the courtroom with your face all beat up. Uh, at the time, I didn't know uh, I was charged with pointing a gun at a cop. I didn't know I was charged with all the charges I was charged with. And uh, actually, when I got to court, my bail was about $200,000. So, you know, uh, I sat it out. And the beginning of my criminal history started from there on out. And, I used to always tell Mike, like I said, he don't come from his wor my world. You know, he got a lot of problems, not problems, well, a lot of things he had to tend to on a daily basis. So, you know, it was just like a, 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 a okay thing, like when I used to tell him. And, you know, when I finally uh, had to go to court for a probation violation uh, 11 years later, I was telling Mike before we went in there, I'm like, yo, you know I ain't ever point a gun at a police officer what I'm on probation for. And, you know, when we got to courtroom, Mike actually was able to feel everything that went on and, and seeing the way that just me, I was treated. You know, I always say uh, America has two sides to it. You know, you got a world of uh, uh, urban world where, you know, people like me come from and, you know, we grew up in on the other side for say if Michael came in the courtroom for doing a bus and a U-turn in a car, you know, it'll be more likely for me to go to prison than Michael Rubin to go to prison. So, you know, I was just, as we became friends, I used to take him to the step-by-steps and, and, and just uh, really explain the things that I went through to make it here and the things that people where I come from go to on a daily basis. And I'd say, the, the truth be told, for the first couple of years, it either didn't compute or it just didn't seem believable. Yeah. And for me, you know, after, you know, he become one of my closest friends, and now it's, you know, whatever, four or five years later, and now you go and you sit in this courtroom and you watch a probation officer get up and say great things about, hey, Robert Williams, he's this great guy. He's done everything we've asked him to do. He's a model probationer. We recommend no sentence. And then you watch a, a district attorney get up and say, we recommend no sentence. Um, and I look at the lawyers, I'm like, why are we even here? They're like, well, no one ever gets sentenced if, you, if, they, if both the DA and probation officer recommend no sentence. And um, literally, the judge says they're going to sentence you. They asked me to get up and speak on Meek's behalf, and I kind of talked about my history in Pennsylvania and my background building companies, uh, you know, my, my affiliation of one of the owners of the Philadelphia Sixers, how well he knew my family, my mom, you know, my, my, my daughter, uh, all my friends that he integrated into. Judge didn't even look at me, and, and five minutes later, she sent him to prison for two to four years for popping a wheelie and for breaking up a fight in an airport where there were no charges in either case. He got sent to prison for two to four years. And for me, that was a life-changing moment because I didn't believe shit like that happened in America. And Meek used to always say to me, <laughs> I can remember this like it was yesterday. There were 50 times we'd be like, you know, we'd be out fun and night out, we'd be in a club, we'd be in a casino, we'd be just on boys' night watching him, like, be like, Michael, there are two Americas. I'd be like, bro, what are you talking about? We live in one great country. Like, you're doing, you're doing incredible. Like, what's this two Americas shit? And he called me. He got taken to, to, to jail right in front of me. He calls me an hour later. And he's like, you know, he's you know, from the payphone in, in, in jail. He says, I literally picked the phone up. And he's like, Mike? I'm like, Meek? I didn't know you could call so quickly from, from jail. He's like, I told you so. I'm like, huh? He's like, I told you so. Like he told me, well, he's like, how many times did I tell you there's two Americas? Did I not tell you so? And he's like, literally, he's been taken back. To, by the way, this was the third time this is the he was third taken to prison for not committing a crime. He'd been sent to prison for doing a concert without the proper authorization. Um, 
He'd been sent to prison for something like these little ticky-tack things that any of us could do and never have an issue, but he did it and he went to prison for it. And for, for you, it was normal. Like it wasn't even, I think two, a year and a half ago, you would have said, this is my life, I'm used to it. And for me, I'm like, this is the craziest shit I've ever seen in my life. And again, like we go back to the original crime, I just wanna, this came, this came later, but just to double back so we know where we came from. I've heard you, Michael, talk in the past about We've since gotten an affidavit from one of the police officers involved. So, so what happened? Tell that story. Yes. So, so what happened was I looked at Meek, and again, this is you know, if, and I don't want to come off as a better guy than I, than I am. <laughs> if Meek was not one of my really good friends, you know, I would have never got involved with this. If it happened to one of Meek's friends, I would have just been like, hey, can I help? Can I send a check? But knowing how close we were, I looked at him when um, he was taking his watch off and t you know, taking his wallet out, and they're putting him in handcuffs. I looked at him and I looked at his mom. I said, I'm not going to stop until I get you out of prison. And fortunately, I was sitting next to this woman from Rock Nation, Desiree Perez. And she's like, yeah, we never met before. We talked on the phone once. I'm not stopping either. And we just said, we're going to do whatever it takes to get him out of prison. And, um, you know, for, for, as a business person who sees something that you can see, it's so everything about this four hours in the courtroom is wrong. You could see this out of control judge. You could see this, you know, probation officer and DA saying what a good guy he was. I said, we have, to, we have to aggressively take this on. So we immediately um, started donating a lot of money to um, charities that would hire investigators. So essentially, we were hiring investigators to go back. And the first thing we did was look at the judge. We looked at her original cases, and all of her cases seemed normal. Then they looked at her personally, and they realized the judge had been one of the most litigious judges in the history of Pennsylvania. She'd sued 33 individuals as a, you know, not, not for me to judge, but as, as a person. We started interviewing those people and finding all kinds of, of um, crazy behavior. You know, the, the craziest was there was a police officer um, who was doing work at one, of her, um, uh, at one of her houses, and she kept changing the specs on this construction work. She, she, finally, after like five times of changing the specs, she said, I'm firing you if you won't do the work. She fires him and then calls the police and said that he broke into her house and stole the tools and told somebody in the house that she moved the tools off-site and then sent an email, which we got the emails in writing, saying, when you come to court, here's what I want you to say. So now we're like, wow, this woman's a crook, which she was. And Meek, I kept going to prison and seeing Meek, and Meek kept saying, Michael, I know you're obsessed with getting this judge because you saw what she did to me, and that feels wrong, but how many times have I told you I didn't point the original gun? Like, I never did what I was charged of. And I left it. Maybe this was, you know, eight weeks into the, into the situation. And I called the investigators. We had, you know, a dozen plus investigators working full time on this. I said, go back and look at the original arrest. And literally, this is now Super Bowl last year. Within um, a day or two of me telling me, like, I didn't point the gun, we find out that the entire unit of eight police officers had all been corrupt, all been charged by the FBI for stealing money, setting people up. You wouldn't believe it. It's like, but no stuff. one went back to his original conviction. No, no. no one said a word to us. We had no idea until right. Meek just kept saying, go back and look at this. So we meet the first police officer who had already gone to jail for doing a bunch of bad things. He said, oh, no, he never pointed the gun. The whole thing's a lie. We're like, what'd you say? They're like, yeah, he didn't point the gun. We're like, will you sign an affidavit? They said, yeah, he signs an affidavit. Then the Philadelphia Inquirer discovers that the other person who charged him, the other arrested officer, was on a list of police officers that were too dirty to testify. Um, so they weren't allowed to testify, but no one ever told us. And then the DA's office, the old DA's office, was withholding this information. So you had one cop who said he didn't do it, signed an affidavit. Another cop was on a list of cops too dirty to testify. I called Meek. I said, bro, 
I got great news. You're making the Super Bowl. You will be in Super Bowl with me last year. And he's like, oh, like maybe, like, uh, but like basically like, like yeah. you know, that's not the way it works for me. And, and, right, yeah. right, exactly. And, and the craziest thing was it took us another three months after it was proven that he was innocent. And the district attorney said, we're throwing the case out. And the judge still won't let him. So three months later, till the Supreme Court jumped in and released him after we knew he was innocent. So when we're talking about sort of larger issues with the system, your case is so interesting because it's so many levels that kind of hits larger scale problems. So one is sort of the initial arrest, the initial crime yeah. sometimes isn't of the scale that it's made to seem to be. Another problem is if there, if there tends over the next few years that there's problems with that initial crime, no one goes back and catches the guys who are suffering on probation and says, oh, wait, these cops turned out to be dirty or whatever, whatever it happens to be. Yeah, You're just in that system. Them. No one's looking for you to go fix that or go back for you. And then probation, I think, is an important thing maybe for, for you guys to explain, because I know this wasn't something you guys keep talking about these two Americas, right? Your world, his world. Yeah. Michael, if you had heard probation, oh, yeah, then just don't commit another crime. No big deal. But but me, probation means what to your life if you are on probation? Uh, just He's still on probation. He's got five years left today. So what's it mean to you right now? You, he had to get permission uh, to come here. But just speaking as far as, like, the whole system in general, you heard Mike just speak. He said he hired dozens of investigators in the world of people who grew up in bad environments and end up in the system. Uh, probably 99.9% of these people would never be able to hire investigators for someone to actually check on the wrongdoing of uh, them being violated of their rights, uh, them being falsely accused. So, you know, nine times out of 10, that would never happen. So if you got tangled up in the system as an 18-year-old kid, just from hanging on a corner in a bad environment, uh, nine times out of 10, you will be placed on probation. And probation, uh, I always was caught in a dilemma because if I got locked up for uh, a probation violation, it'd be a technical violation, not committing crime. One time I served time for actually uh, going to DC, but staying an extra two blocks over because the hotels were sold out and staying past uh, state lines in uh, Maryland, for say, uh, I would say Virginia. I don't know exactly where it was, but you know, uh, my hotel didn't match actually where uh, the city I was approved to go to, and it was actually probably a walking block away, you know what I'm saying? And I was uh, given a technical violation. You put in jail for that? Yeah, I was put in prison. I did three months in prison for that, 90 days in prison. Uh, my mother lives in New Jersey, where I live at. If anyone, I'm from Philadelphia, Center City. I live in uh, Center City. Probably uh, my house is walking distance from the New Jersey Bridge, my son lives in New Jersey, he attends school in New Jersey, uh, my mother lives in New Jersey. Basically, the bridge that gaps it is walking distance. Uh, if I would have crossed that bridge, right now I have five years of probation, I would end up spending probably five years in prison, and, and that's what happened. And just speaking on, like, environment from where I come from, I come from, uh, you know, uh, I said it so many times, the ghetto of America, where, you know, neighborhoods are full with drugs, neighborhoods are full of violence. So, you know, uh, as a kid, I grew up in the, uh, I would say, early 90s, after the late 80s of the crack era, you know, where a lot of laws had changed. And at this time, growing up as a young kid, we had, like, hard crack laws where 
our neighborhoods were deserted with men and people were given so much probation and people were hit with so many laws that we didn't even really have men to raise us in our era. So, you know, we had to grow up and navigate. And, you know, through growing up in them situations, you know, you will have police contact. And I don't know if you know, police contact on probation is a violation. You can have your freedom took just from being pulled over by a police officer. It was, it was one young man. Uh, we had our Reform Alliance uh, panel. It was young man, one, one young man. He made a U-turn and ended up getting, I think, nine months in prison. He lost his job. Uh, he lost contact with his family. You're making a U-turn. Yeah, he lost his life. And, and people don't understand that. You may see me, my case is just a forerunner, not my face, my case. Uh, you might see Meek Mill violates probation, goes to jail again. But uh, I was riding a motorcycle. I willie the motorcycle. If you follow me on Instagram, I've been willing motorcycles uh, my whole life. I love motorcycles and ATVs more than I love making music. If you follow me, I've been doing this for the last eight, nine years in a public setting. And uh, one day a cop decided to lock me up for it. You know, uh, I got charged with an F1 felony, which is the worstest felony. The first time I went to court, the case got thrown away. But you know, being as though I was on probation and I had police contact, I went to court. And Mike World, he thought it was impossible for me to go to prison. Me, you know, I was looking at him like he's crazy, like it's impossible. <laughs> Uh, when I actually went to court, I ended up getting two to four years. And uh, not just speaking on myself, a two to four year sentence to someone like me, I'm, I'm doing good for myself. I'm making good money. I employ people. I am employed. I do a lot of charity. I'm in the rap business. I'm on about my seventh year in the rap business. And rap only lasts, the business is, uh, for, for the average artist is a five year uh, business where you make a lot of money. I'm on my seventh year. Uh, two to four sentence for me was like a, a, a death sentence to my career. And uh, I wouldn't have been able to work for two years. Uh, it would have been the hardest thing in the world to even get back on my feet. And you know, when I was locked up, I sat there with a lot of people where I seen that they wanted to go home and do right. It's almost impossible to go home as a felon, get out of prison, find a job, without having to live on the street because you might not have anywhere to live. Find a job, get in position. And you know, uh, me, I, myself, I had 11 years. I've been on probation, what, 11 years now? I don't even count anymore. I've been on probation my whole adult life. I'm 18 years old, 31 years old. You're going for the Guinness Book of World's Record longest <laughs> probation. But, but yeah. that's the thing, it's crazy. Once I started doing research for this panel and reading about your story, you say that he's going, but there's so many people like this. It's not that he would set a record. <laughs> that, it's that there's people who go the, in at 18 and they're just basically on probation their whole life because it rolls. The big moment for us was once the cop came forward and said he didn't point the gun. Yeah. Then the um, other cop was found to be so dirty that he wasn't um, supposed to testify from the DA's office. And the DA tried to throw the case out. And it took another three months to get him out of prison after we knew all of that. That's when our conversation on a daily basis changed from how do we get you out of prison to as soon as we get you out of prison, we got to fix this problem. And I got to tell you something, this problem is so much bigger than I ever understood. For Meek, he's lived his whole life. So right. it was, you know, he understood it perfectly. For me, which is, I think, more represented, you know, I think, you know, most of America doesn't understand this issue. And by the way, America is particularly, this is not a global issue. It's an America issue. It is the criminal justice system in America is fundamentally broken. We have five times the rate of incarceration 
than the entire rest of the world. That's a okay. crazy number five we're here talking we have, about. You look at America versus the rest of the world, we have five times the rate of incarceration. We have 6.7 million people in the criminal justice system today. Four and a half million people are on probation and parole. That's what screwed up his, his you know, that, that's what's tortured his entire adult life is being on probation and parole. And here's a guy literally, when he got out of prison eight months ago, we were literally talking 50 times a day for the first week trying to figure out, could he go see his kid? Right. Live 10 minutes away because we want to make sure he didn't get arrested because we knew that certain people were going after him. And if he crossed the bridge from Philadelphia to go 10 minutes into New Jersey to pick up his kid from school, would he get arrested? And so we looked at this and said, hey, we got to fix this problem. And people say all the time, Meek says it all the time, he didn't want to be the face of criminal justice reform. This was, you know, I'm probably, you know, both of us are spending a ton of time, so much time that he literally left his concert last night in L.A. and it was important enough for him to come here to go back to do another concert in San Francisco tonight. But we're spending so much time on this issue because there are millions of people that are trapped and it's affecting tens of millions of people because each person that's stuck, it affects their family, their friends. And so we believe that um, just going after probation and parole, which is two-thirds of the criminal justice system, four and a half million people, that we can get at least a million people out of the system in the next five years. And if we do that, we're going to change the lives, not for that million people, but maybe for 10 million people, for all the people it affects. And I think this is a giant issue that most Americans don't understand. And it's the, roll, it's the rolling, absolutely. It's the rolling nature of it, because as you point out, you're in jail for a certain crime, and then with each probation violation, all of a sudden you get more years added of probation and more years added of probation. You can literally spend your life in, in just chasing that forever. I've heard you say it's set up for you to fail, which I'm sure is what it feels like. Now, I know you know what this feels like. I kind of want to take a survey of the audience. How many people here have been in jail? All right. Oh, That's a great round. Two, two people back there. I've got, all right. So we are talking about your two Americas. Can you explain to this America what it is like to be in jail? Uh, basically, uh, this time, you know, uh, I've been doing well for myself. This time, I went to prison in the last three times, you know. Earlier in the game, I, I, I didn't value myself as much as I did now because I came from a neighborhood where you see death, violence, people go to jail on, on a daily basis. That's just normal to you. Uh, later on in my life, I started traveling the world. Uh, I did a lot of charity. I met a lot of people, like, you know, Michael and me and him talk, I talk to him like how I would talk to one of my friends I grew up with. And, and it's, it's, it's just plain and simple that we grew up living different lives. And you know, it's almost just from a mental standpoint, uh, being in prison and being shackled and being stripped naked and being uh, locked in cells. Sometimes you might just be on a, a, a two week lockdown, locked in a cell as small as these four squares right here for 24 hours a day. It was mentally almost broke. It almost broke me mentally knowing I'm here and I didn't commit crime. You know what I'm saying? I've been on probation since 18. I was accused at 18 years old and at the age of 31, when I'm at the highest peak of my life, I'm in prison being shackled from my ankle to my wrist. Uh, can't communicate with my kids, can't communicate with my family, knowing at the time, uh, I told you I've been in the game seven years, you know, I had to actually go above and beyond to be able to still be in the music industry and still be able to generate money, uh, pay my bills from prison. Mentally, the first thing it did was almost made me give up on like uh, just trying to win, you know what I'm saying? And 
me, I'm strong. I, I've been in this situation three times, and you know, I overcame that situation and still had, able to move forward in my career. I always thought about the people who couldn't overcome those things, the people who got even like, you know, uh, sometimes I see comments, because you know, I read everything. People are like, that was lenient. I'm like, who makes up what is lean in the system? In the system, like, you know, I'm doing great. I'm, I'm doing fine. I got a job. I'm employing people. It's you know? because I'm people not, don't understand. I'm not committing crime. 30 days, you can lose your household. Uh, in 30 days, you can lose your job. Well, you can lose your job. You miss one day at work. You can lose everything. So, you know, uh, probation was designed to keep an eye on uh, 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 a defendant from going back to committing crime, from going back to the streets, maybe using drugs, not to send you back to prison. And uh, this is a big topic uh, on both sides of America. Speaking on opioids, uh, I had my wisdom tooth pulled, and I, I took opioids probably for Percocets, to be exact, for seven days straight. And once seven days went by, my body got addicted to using Percocets. And, and this and this what made me like really focus in on two Americas. When I lived in the city of Philadelphia, I went to city probation. If you go to city probation and you see it's probably a hundred probation officers where they see five hundred defendants in one day. So you got one hundred people seeing maybe two hundred to five hundred people a day. Uh, when you get addicted to a, 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 a drug, it don't even have to be like a hard drug. It could be something that was prescribed to you. Uh, the first option is jail, you know what I'm saying? And that was the first option for me. They put me in prison. Uh, I just went to prison, sat down for 90 days, played basketball, wasted a lot of time, and got back out and still was addicted to Percocets. Years later, when I made more money and I, uh, well, not even, it ain't have anything to do with money. It just, uh, my lawyer, I told my lawyer, I feel endangered. I got to stay in this same area where I grew up at. I'm trying to move forward in my life. I want to move to a different area in Philadelphia. And, you know, she let me move to Montgomery County where uh, it's a suburban area where you got 50 probation officers seeing probably 75 uh, defendants a day. And when it's like that, you have 50 people that can cater to 75 people and help them get help. And, you know, uh, I went in front of my old, my, my probation officer, name, now her name is Kathy Subio. Uh, I just went in there and told her the truth. I told her I needed help. She put me in rehabilitation. I, I was in rehab. You know, I, I, I was traveling on the road, so I asked her, could I actually uh, hire someone that can actually cater to me on a daily basis? And me being a public figure, a celebrity, I would be not, I wouldn't be more open to being in a room with 10 people I didn't know explaining my business because I might go to a rehab session with all 10 people there. They know me, they know everything about my life and it'd be harder for me to open up and really uh, address my problem. She let me do that and you know, I've never been back uh, for Percocets ever in my life. It's been two, three years. Uh, and that was the end of that story. So. It just showed me it was two different sides. You know, I went to a suburban probation where they could cater to me, and I was on in a city where the first option, like, how could you tell your probation officer you have a problem with Percocets when, you know, you're going to jail? So nine times out of 10, I think anybody in this room would, uh, you would try to suppress that, hide that from your probation officer. And uh, just seeing things like that, you know, from the experience of being in the, of both sides of it, you know, it made me want to just address it, you know, and help people because, you know, I've been a part of the probation 
in a room with 200 people at one time and we all got to wait on five probation officers. And you know, uh, your life is just in their hands and nobody really caters to people needing help. And I always say growing up in the environment I grew up in, uh, seeing murder, seeing people go to prison, seeing drugs and your family members on drugs, you know, that, that wears on you. And, and as, a, as a kid, a lot of people, you might go through these bad neighborhoods and uh, see a lot of people on drugs because they seen so much, the first thing they do is turn to using uh, drugs. And drugs distort your decision-making process and uh, going to prison, trauma, seeing all these things. You know, it start the wear and tear on you. And, you know, I'm a strong person where I, I fought through these things, but I seen people tore down through these things and, you know, they weren't able to actually raise kids the right way, the proper way. And, you know, that affected families and, and it kept the system, it kept the system going where uh, my father was in prison. My father died young at the age of 30. You know, I grew up and went to prison and, you know, I read some books and I studied some things where they say, if you go to prison, your son has an 80% chance of going to prison. And you know, my son grew up in a suburban area his whole life, I, I, I've been doing good. He don't come from what I come from. That disturbed me. So, you know, I wanted to do something where I gave, I was able to help and bring light and shed light on a situation that to give people a fair chance in America, you know, cause I started off with a rough start. I, I watched a, something on YouTube one day where, uh, we was talking like me and Mike, where it was a race where they said like, uh, if you grew up with a, a mom and a dad in the house, take one step forward. It's a great video. If you grew up and they never had to pay a bill to you as 18 years old, take a step forward. If you grew up uh, in a household where no one never been to prison, take a step forward. You know, it was just a lot of steps and you know, it was two black kids where they couldn't take the step forward and then he said race, you know what I'm saying? And they race. It was a little harder for the kids in the back who didn't take step fours to catch up. So, you know, I just wanted to dedicate myself and my platform from what I've been through, my experiences, and be able to shed light and bring light to the people unlike me who don't have the support I have and trying to get them a fair shot at life, really, you know, because I experienced firsthand how hard it was to make it where I am. And uh, the other day, I, I, I DM'd Tom Brady. I was like, yo, Tom, you, you're the GOAT. <laughs> and, you know, I didn't even know Tom Brady knew who I was. I just took a shot. He was like, I seen you been through so much, and uh, what you went through was kind of like <laughs> almost harder than winning a Super Bowl game. But I'm like, no, yeah, you won six Super Bowls. You know, I, 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 I shed the light back to him. Like, Yo, you're the greatest of all times, and, you know. Uh, Two goats. There you go. Yeah. So, you know, that's, that's just my story. A lot of people uh, always really surround the story around me. I don't really like surrounding around myself because my situation is minor to what I actually seen with my own two eyes, with people who go through the system. So, you know, I just wanted to be able to shed light and take my situation and be in rooms like this. Like I came from performing in Los Angeles last night. I got off stage at 12 o'clock. I went straight to the airport, came right here. Uh, I didn't sleep on the plane, got up. I believe that it's important to come in rooms like this with people who may not understand what goes on and, uh, you know, express myself and share light to ones like yourselves in the room today. Awesome. Thank you.
And I've heard you talk about, you know, people you met in prison where someone couldn't pay a $100 fine, right, for yeah. something they committed? I've been locked up with people who had a $100 bail where he probably was loitering, he had a $100 bail, served 28 months in prison. Uh, I've been locked up with a guy, he submitted new evidence that it was like DNA evidence, forensic evidence that he didn't commit the crime he was arrested for. Being as though he didn't submit the evidence in 60 days, because Pennsylvania has a law, like any of you guys in here could go to prison in Pennsylvania for, the, for a, a hard crime that you didn't do. And you could submit DNA evidence, but if you had that DNA evidence for 60 days and you didn't submit it and it proves you totally innocent, uh, you will sit in jail and it doesn't count. So the, to me, certain things like that didn't really sit well with me seeing that, you know, uh, me being in prison, I went to study law, you know. Uh, uh, I couldn't leave my life in the hands of a lawyer that I just met yesterday. So, you know, I started to study and a lot of statues and not saying like, you know, people deserve to go to prison. You have people that deserve to go to prison. But a lot of these statues that are made, just like police contact, I could leave out here and get pulled over by police. I have to call my probation officer, and that is police contact. And she has to decide if she wants to send me to prison just for coming in contact with a police uh, with a police officer. So you know, they have someone in this world right now who can send me to prison just for getting a traffic ticket right now, and I have no control over that. If I would have stayed in Los Angeles today and didn't come to Boston because my schedule, I had to get permission to come here. If I just would have stayed in Los Angeles where my schedule had me at, I could have went to prison for five years of my life, you know? And nobody really breaks down the, 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 the technicalities of probation, you know? They just say he violated probation. So when you read that narrative in, in the media, you know, you look at it like, uh, he broke the law, he may deserve to be in prison. And it's not breaking the law. You could honestly go to prison just for making a mistake even while you're doing so well in your life. And, you know, I just wanted to um, get on top of that and, and, you know, shed a light on that. Which led me to another question I want to ask the room. So we got two hands up out of the many hundreds, maybe even a thousand people in this room about having ever been to jail. How many people in this room have ever been late for anything? A meeting, a doctor's appointment, school? Yeah. We've <laughs> like, definitely been late. Right? <laughs> okay. Um, you can go to prison for being late. Yeah. Right? If you're on probation and you show up five minutes late, for something, you can go to jail for a year. So here's the, good, here's the good news. From my perspective, and I know Meek feels exactly the same way, I think we were both built with every negative needs to be turned into a positive. And learning from his really screwed up situation, we've now started the Reform Alliance, which we've had eight great founding partners, myself, Meek, Robert Kraft, Jay-Z, uh, Mike Novogratz, Dan Loeb, Robert Smith and, uh, and, and the size who just bought the Brooklyn Nets. And, and, and um, together, the eight of us committed $50 million. We hired Van Jones to run this, um, to run our alliance. And, and what we're focused on is changing the laws in each state that don't make sense. So a great example of that, and, and, and the first state that we're focused on is Pennsylvania, where we're both from. In Pennsylvania, there's no cap on how long you can be on probation. There's also no cap for if you have a technical violation, like you were late for your probation meeting, there's no cap for how long they can send you to prison. So, but in New York, where I came from yesterday, you, can only, you can't be on probation for more than five years. There's a cap for probation. The majority of states have a cap for probation. Pennsylvania doesn't. There are 300,000 people in Pennsylvania on probation and parole today. 
300,000 people, okay? If you just institute logical things, like a cap on how long you can be on probation, if we had the same cap as New York, Meeks probation would have been over six years ago. Instead, he has another five years left. If you put a cap on, if you have a technical violation, technical violation means you didn't break a law, so you were late for your probation appointment. You smoked weed and you tested positive for that. Um, if that happens and you have a cap, which many states have, you can't go to prison for it. In Pennsylvania, he got sent to prison for two to four years for never breaking a law. So we're now going to go state by state, starting in Pennsylvania and New York, and we're going to work to change the laws in each state on a state-by-state -state basis. And we believe when we're done that there'll be um, at least a million people, if not more, that we can get out of the system by coming up with laws that everybody in this room would say are completely logical. And we say it all the time. There's lots of people that belong in prison. You know, violent criminals, you murdered somebody, you, you, you armed robbery, rape, whatever. There's so many bad things. They belong in prison. We're talking about there are 750,000 people that go to prison each year. A quarter are for technical probation violations. The biggest two violations are being late or missing your appointment or marijuana. None of those people should ever go to prison. Zero. So we need to go state by state and change the laws, and that's what we're focused on doing now. And you've talked about one thing that really fits into the conference here is taking more of a numbers-based approach, taking more of a business approach to doing this as opposed to just sort of being like, yes, it's not good, but instead really looking at this from a businessman's aspect, because you both are businessmen. Yeah, so, so, so Meek, and I, Meek and I left. Uh, we were in Los Angeles for this Variety Criminal Justice Conference, and we met a guy who, in his 20s, um, had sold very minimal values of cocaine, I think like $500 or $1,000 of cocaine twice in his early 20s. In his 40s, 20 years later, he went to prison for five years, I think, or four years in his early 20s for selling small you know, quantities of, of cocaine. 20 years later, he had two joints for his personal use. He got arrested and he got sent to jail for 15 years for having two joints because there's a three-strike rule. And so now he had marijuana and he got sent to jail for 15 years. And I got in the car and I looked at Meek I said, that is the most fucked up thing I've ever heard. He looked at me, he said, what'd you say to me? That's a regular day in my world. And what I say to you? No, it's not regular, it's not right. normal. Right, and so we have this debate, and the good thing is, so I approach this very much like a business. Like, you know, I run Fanatics, like a logical business. I run, you know, we own Rula La, it's based here in Boston, and the Guild Group. We run these, like, logical businesses. We're taking the same approach here, which is, if something doesn't make sense, you gotta fix it. And most of the laws in the criminal justice system don't make sense. And so we're just taking that same business approach. We went out, we got great partners, great capital, great CEO. Now we're building a great leadership team. And I gotta tell you something, when you have Meek and Jay-Z and Robert Kraft and, and the size and all the great partners that we have, um, everyone wants to come be part of this. So we're gonna get the smartest people. Um, and by the way, there's probably many people in this room that we'd love to be part of the Reform Alliance. We wanna get the smartest people working with us to go state by state and change the laws. And I gotta tell you something, I believe with a very entrepreneurial, logical approach, we're gonna get a lot accomplished over the next several years. What about you? Because you've seen your two Americas, right? Yeah. You've had to convince him for a long time, hey, it's not, it, it, this is what the real world is actually like. Yeah. Are you buying in that taking this approach can actually change? Are you buying into his America a little bit that, t that you could actually change yeah, some of this I, stuff? Yeah, I, I believe that's one of the layers, you know, uh, just trying to fix something in the system. The system has so many different layers to it. I believe that's a big step in, in, in moving forward and in making change and to change in some of these statutes and some of these laws that 
don't make sense. So I think that's that's the right approach. Can you guys- I'll put you on the spot though. Talk about how much because we talk about this all the time. How much you value yourself based on learning about you know the America I came from today versus what you came from. I mean, I just think I know when I met you whatever it was, five, six years ago, yeah. you, you didn't, I didn't feel like, you know, it was normal for you to, you know, what was normal to you five or six years ago isn't normal today in my mind. Uh, just having conversations, I might be having a, a conversation with Michael or Robert Kraft, I know they don't come from my world, so you know, they just start these things were so outrageous, and I'm like, in my world, this is like a normal thing, people die every day, people go to prison every day, and that was my world that I grew up in, and, and at the time, I still, I met Mike at the age of, 28. I didn't traveled the world, been around the world uh, a bunch of times, and just the world I came from, and actually sitting down and having, like, you know, we might spend a seven-hour plane ride or a five-hour plane ride, and I just ex- find out about his life and find out the ups and downs of his life, and he find out what my ups and downs of my life were, and they were nothing alike, and and and, and he was always so outraged about. It'll be a story. I took Michael to my neighborhood and. Uh, and, and this, this, this is off subject, but I took him to my neighborhood and uh, we seen a bunch of kids walking by. They all was the same age as his daughter and they were great kids. Younger, they were like eight years old. Yeah, so I just asked the kids in the group, how many of you guys seen somebody get shot before? How many of them raised their hand? Every, I have 10 kids, every kid, but every eight year old raised their hand other than one. So there were 10 eight-year-olds, nine of the 10 raised their hand. Uh, so see somebody had been shot before. And they were walking to school. So as they walk into school, we walk to the corner with the kids. We see bullet holes in, in, in a Chinese restaurant. And I was just telling Mike, like, I'm doing it to give kids like this a, a fair shot. These kids don't know anything. They don't know how to be wrong. They only doing what they see. So, you know, it's just like they were placed, they were born into being so far back that uh, they may never have a shot. And I was one of those kids and, you know, God gave me the drive to be able to navigate and make it through all that. So, you know, I just wanted to uh, double back and, and, you know, get them kids a fair shot. And, you know, talking with Michael and me and Michael trading uh, stories, you know, I just started to value myself. I, I seen how he could walk in a room and, you know, be treated with so much respect. And, you know, I mean, I might have on, uh, you know, Mike got on a hoodie right now. I'm actually dressed nice. He's the one that wears a hoodie. I would come to this event. I would wear a hoodie, you know, because I want you guys to view me as who uh, I was when I caught this case at, at the age of 18 and I was accused and I was tangled up in the system because uh, nobody ever really cared. And, you know, Michael was my friend. He stepped up. He came to court. He actually had to come to court and see with his own eyes. If I didn't see it, I would have never believed it. That's the right. big thing, though. Had you told me the story, I would have never believed it. You had to be there in that courtroom to watch the craziness that happened to say, this is real. We're, we're getting the rap sign, so before we do, I want to close with this because it's a really nice story. Thank Can you guys tell the story of the day that you finally did get out of prison this recent time? Um, wh- how you found out, because that's amazing, and yeah. then you coming and picking Hold on, you gotta, up. You gotta, you gotta back up first, because Kevin Hart, who's one of Meek's closest friends, was in Philadelphia for um, game five or game six of the, uh, we, we had a, a potential closeout game against, against the Heat, and Kevin said, hey, can you set it up for me to go see, see Meek? So we're, we're, we're in visiting Meek for yeah. a couple hours, and I said to Meek, you know, maybe you make the game tonight. He's like, Michael, basically, like, fuck you. Like, <laughs> like you know, he basically said to me, like, you told me I was going to be home for Thanksgiving. You told me I was going to be home for Christmas. You told me I'd be home for Super Bowl. You told me I'd be home for All-Star Game. I'm never getting out of here. No, I'll give it to you. Yeah, uh, actually, I just sat down and watched the news. Michael and Kevin Hart came to see me. Uh, we had a visit. 
Uh, I went to my cell and I actually watched the news and I'm just watching TV and they just like, Meek Mill's free for bells. So, you know, I'm in a cell, we locked in and it's little, <laughs> you know, of course you can imagine I'm jumping around <laughs> by myself. Uh, 10 minutes later, I'm getting out, I'm walking out, Michael was out there. Uh, well, no, they tried to not let him leave. So we had, so we had a potential closeout game against the Miami Heat. I said, we, and this was at 4.30, we got the Supreme Court stepped in and ordered his release. I said, he's getting out, we're going to this game, we're, we're winning this game against the happen. Miami Heat. <laughs> and literally, the judge said, I'm not signing the paperwork. The, there's, the cost to get him out was zero, but the paperwork wasn't proper because it didn't say, it's, it, it, there was like a technicality in the paperwork. She said she won't sign the paperwork. And in my typical Michael Rubin self, I said to the lawyers, you get to the courtroom, you literally don't leave, literally make them remove you by force until she signs the paperwork. And literally everybody was involved. They signed the paperwork and then the, uh, the story gets a little better because Meek had always said to me, or Meek had always said, I keep having this dream about you picking me up in a helicopter that you know, he'd spent a lot of time on previous to, to going to prison. And, and um, you know, I'm like, it's only an hour away. We're not picking up in a helicopter. And this guy <laughs> said, you gotta pick him up in a helicopter, so. Yeah, but more of the story is. Uh... <laughs> any, any, anything's possible? <laughs> yeah, no, like, I don't want to make it sound so spectacular. It, you know, more of the it story, was pretty spectacular. The more of the story is, I caught this case when I was 18. Uh, the Supreme Court seen the overwhelming evidence of me not pointing a firearm at a police officer. They granted me bail. I caught this case at 18 years old. I'm 31 years old. I probably served three years in jail of actual jail time. Uh, house arrest, ankle monitors from probation violations, probably 11 months. So probably four or five years of just jail time, in and out of jail. It's 11 years later, I'm still on bail fighting the same case and my life is still entangled from an accusation that happened when I was 18 years old. At the age of 21, I made uh, a well enough money to move myself and my family out of these environments that I'm telling you about. Once we moved away from them environments, I never been accused of crime again. I never was arrested for crime again. Uh, and at this stage of my life, I'm doing well for myself. Probation is still tracking me down and one mistake could put me back in prison. So, you know, you have millions of people on probation and, you know, we just want to make it fair and bring awareness to these statutes and laws that keep people trapped in probation. So, you know, I, I thank y'all for having me here. You know, I went out my way. I got a concert tonight. Uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I got to go perform in San Fran and I wanted to come here myself and be in front of you guys and bring awareness to what's going on deep down in America. So thank you for having me here today. Appreciate that. And Michael, as we see people stand, if, as people want to get involved in the Reform Alliance, what's a good way to do that? Yeah. Yeah, so, so, so we are, um, we, 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 we are we've, one of the greatest things has been how many people have said, how can we help? And the biggest thing we need to do is spread the word because most people are like me and didn't understand. And that's one of the things we're going to be work. One of the things Van, Van, who just Van Jones, who took over and is leading the foundation or the, the alliance is going to do is really work on how can we commute, how everyone can, can come together and help spread the word. That, that is the most important thing because education leads to change. All right. So I think there's about a thousand people in this room. Go tell five of your friends because that's 5,000 people and they can tell their friends. So let's start there. Okay. All right. If you want to hear these panels in person next year on March 6th and 7th, 2020 in Boston, please register for the 14th annual MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference at sloansportsconference.com.
This recording is the property of 42 Analytics and may not be published, broadcast, rewritten, or redistributed without the express written consent of 42 Analytics. Any opinions expressed by panelists are their own and do not represent the beliefs of the conference, 42 Analytics, or the MIT Sloan School of Management. 42 Analytics Educational, Inc. reserves all rights in the content.